This is Vital Voices. Even in his later years, Haynes Lancaster Jr. had a phenomenal memory for detail. These are excerpts from an interview I did with him about his role in bringing television to the Tri-Cities as general manager of WJHL-TV, which turns 70 this month. Tell me what gave you the idea, first of all, to start a television station. You might say it was a crapshoot, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'd, uh, I'd seen some of it because of my trips to New York involving WJHL radio and had thought that it might work, although we knew there were very few sets. Charlotte was on the air and people were putting up antennas. With that in mind, I applied in 1948 and uh, got caught in the freeze when there were allocation of channels. Our first application was working its way through the commission, had been approved by the Broadcast Bureau, and had, we'd been assured we'd have it within 10 days, which since it required only the uh, commission's signature. And all of a sudden they dropped the freeze which froze all channels for a little over four years, and they reallocated the whole country. And the channel they allocated to Johnson City was 11 at that time. Mm -hmm. Still is, of course. And that's when I had to make my application again, and it was granted January on January 23rd, I believe it was, of 1953, that we got our grant, construction permit. The thing about television is at that time, there was really no rule to go by. So you developed your own. Most of it came from radio as to what you had in radio. Right. How did the affiliation with CBS come about? Well, it was uh, really it was up to the station to sell themselves to the networks. Because the networks, at that time there were four networks, more major networks. Uh, you might call them major. You had your CBS, NBC, and ABC, plus Dumont. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had all four. I, but I had a primary CBS affiliation with a provision I had supplemental with the other three networks. Now, we had no interconnection in here by microwave, so any network program was either done by film on a same-time basis, they'd send me the film in advance, or we'd be on a one-week delay on the kinescope, mm -hmm. which was a picture, a film taken of a screen, <laughs> which were pretty horrible, really. <laughs> and, <laughs> but we were, you had different major shows at that time that were pretty well controlled by the agencies and, and the large companies. And you had to actually sit down and sell yourself to them. Now, tell me the story about how the tower fell and how you recovered from that. Well, uh, <laughs> I don't know that there was that much recovery except <laughs> being shaken up. And this was built under the WJHL Inc. Corporation, the same that owned WJHL Radio at that time which is now WJCW. WJCW. We had contracted with a with a General Electric Company for the equipment and the equipment was ready to be shipped earlier, but we had to find a tower and we contracted with a company called Skyline Tower Company out of Greenville, North Carolina. 
to build the tower, and we were, it was a 550-foot tower. And since I'd been turned down by the FAA of putting it on the site I wanted on Holston Mountain, we put it on Tannery Knob mm-hmm. on the piece of property in town that we owned that we were going to use for our FM. We'd just gotten our grant for FM a year earlier. So they erected it, shipped it in here. We had to pay them in advance for them to build it. And one of the problems in the haste of getting equipment all ordered, getting the tower erected, and I blame myself for that. I did not, even though the contract with them required a performance bond, I never uh, overlooked the fact they never sent it. And the tower was up to 550 feet, and we were going to swing the antenna the next morning. It was the 9th of October of 53. And they were jacking in the top guy lines. And by jacking in, I mean they were tightening them mm-hmm. and making sure the tower was straight so they could uh, heist the antenna the next morning. Well, the one of the choke lines, which is a line that is pulled around as they tighten down to, ho- to pull the guy lines in tight, broke. Well, you had two more lines out there that were still under tension, and it started a whipping action and just whipped the thing to the ground, mm-hmm. threw pieces and sections of tower all over the top of that hill, <laughs> including our, our building that we had built up there. Which delayed you going on the air how long? Well, surprisingly enough, it didn't delay us uh, from getting on the air, but not with the effective mm-hmm. range that we wanted. We'd put one tower up earlier, two months prior to that, and it developed a torque, and we had to take it down and ordered the new one that got there on in October. And the pieces of the original tower were still mm-hmm. lying on the ground, and Jay Green Company poured me a pad of concrete on the opposite end of the building from where their tower was going to go, and we put a 78-foot stub tower on and heisted the antenna and got on the air nine days later <laughs> while we were still building the other tower right. later on to the 550-foot level. When that tower fell, did you have second thoughts about getting into this business called television? None whatsoever. <laughs> when, when you fall in, fall in and you feel like you're going to drown, if you get out, you don't quit swimming. <laughs> but, no, we... We went to, I went to, uh, called, a, called a gentleman that I'd met in New York named Bernie Klein, and he was in the process of building a 2,000-foot tower. He's from Iron Ma- Chemco Towers, mm-hmm. uh, Klein Iron Metal Company out of Columbia, South Carolina. And I had met him up there and discussed, I called him and told him what had happened. And I said, Bernie, I've got to have a tower. He says, I'll tell you what I'll do, Hank. He says, I'm in the process of building a 2,000-footer, but they not won't be ready for it for at least a year. And I'll sell you the bottom 550 feet of it mm-hmm. and ship it to you so we can get this thing and get you on the air. I said, well, Bernie, i got to figure out a way to pay this thing. Don't worry about that now. says, we'll talk about that while we're getting you on air. <laughs> so in the process of while it was being built, I, I said, now, Bernie, let's sit down and talk about this because I'm going to owe you for a tower. 
I said, I prepaid on the other one, and I'd found out that the Skyline Tower Company had taken bankruptcy the minute it hit the ground. <laughs> so I, I said, I've got to figure out a way to pay you. He says, I'll tell you what, you get this thing on the air, and we'll set up an arrangement that you pay me when you can. So just set up where you feel like you can pay me each month. I'll take that, and we'll draw an agreement mm-hmm. later. And that's the way we put the tower on yeah. there. Tell me about building your on-air staff in the early days, how you went about hiring those folks, where you found them, where they came from. And mainly, they came from radio. The engineering staff totally was from radio, and then we expanded. Practically no one had television experience at that time because nobody in the country had any experience, Mm -hmm. really. All local commercials that weren't done on slide, if they were done live. And so you had to have rehearsal time, and uh, Nick Carter had a show, a live show on there, and uh, he always had animals. Well, animals at times are not very camera shy on what they're going to do. And we had several... uh, Occasions similar to that, people walked through the set while it was on the air. You mentioned Nick Carter. Let's talk about some of those people you had on the air early on. What kind of fellow was he? I, I remember Nick Carter. Nick was a, he was a good salesman, apparently, because of modern furniture company. And he loved to do the show. And apparently he sold furniture because of it. So he had a, like a variety show? Yes, mm-hmm. He had a little band with him, and uh, and of course we Bonnie Lou and Buster started with us, and before they and then they went on to Knoxville. Now there was a larger market for them, and you can't blame them for leaving. But uh, for those who might not, I remember them too. But for those who might not, describe Bonnie Lou and Buster and their act. The manager of that team was Bonnie Lou. Buster was. Uh, he was a player, but uh, she was the one that carried that show, and she did real well by it. Now, another name folks might remember around here is Jay Norton Arney. Well, that was the morning show, mm-hmm. yeah. He uh, he and the Sunshine Girls. He would come in every morning, and then after the show, he'd go across the street with the Sunshine Girls, and I think Mrs. Arney got the idea that It'd be, it's a bad idea for him being with those young girls every morning, and so that stopped. <laughs> he had the show, but that was it. No breakfast. <laughs> Sunshine Girls were what, a vocal group? Or? Yes, it was a local group. Uh-huh. Yeah. It, well, he, he sold cars, right? Yes, he was a Pontiac dealer. Yeah. And uh, here on Wilson Avenue, he had that morning show at 6.30 every, every day. What Haynes Lancaster describes next is a murder that took place in downtown Johnson City on May 10, 1962. The city's Chevrolet dealer, Roy Faircloth, was hosting a jamboree at his dealership with country singer Roy Acuff as the entertainment. After an argument and altercation, car dealer Roy Faircloth was shot and killed by his former friend, Hack Smithdeal who ran a cab company in downtown Johnson City. 
Smith deal was eventually acquitted of first-degree murder in September of 1962 after a jury determined that he had shot Faircloth as a means of self-defense. Hill Summers Chevrolet was sold to Roy Faircloth, and Roy was a became a large advertiser of ours up until the time that he was killed over there, was shot. He had he the singer from Nashville. In. Roy Aka. Roy, yeah. Roy was in there because Roy came in and asked me, he said, can I park in your place behind the station so I can get out of here early and go back to Nashville, drive back tonight? I said, sure. Well, he parked there, but the minute that Roy got shot, I mean, that Roy Faircloth uh, got mm-hmm. shot, Roy Acuff jumped in that car and took off for Nashville before anybody else knew what was going on. <laughs> he got out of town in a hurry. Tell me about some of the early newscasters on WJHL. The main, the night we signed on, Herb Howard was the MC mm-hmm. on it. And of course, Herb went on to, to uh, got his, he was his state. And he went on to uh, North Carolina for his doctorate and then ended up teaching in, at UT. Of course, Patty Smith deal and later Ilo Salyer did cooking segments, and Ilo hosted a variety show. The current manager of the station wanted me to ask you about a lady named Catherine Willis who was hired to do a cooking show but apparently couldn't cook. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Catherine had gone to school at uh, acting school in Palo Alto, California. She had also had radio experience during the war of talking to the troops. She was with Armed Forces Radio. And so she had a, a wonderful gift of gab. Whether she could cook or not, she'd pre-do <laughs> it and then show it. And then the... She'd spend the afternoon cooking for or the, the morning before the show, cooking, and then everybody in the station would have lunch there off of what she cooked, oh. or else it'd go in the garbage can. <laughs> <laughs> but they loved to have her cook cakes and cookies. Oh, I just enjoyed every minute that we were getting up, getting to work in the morning. Haynes Lancaster Jr. died on January 27, 2014, at the age of 89. For Vital Voices, I'm Fred Sossman.